Well, hey, welcome to Sojourn Church. We're so glad that you're gathered with us this morning. So glad that we could be together as God's people on this day and worship together and open up God's word this morning. If you need a Bible, would you just raise your hand and uh, somebody will bring a Bible around to you if you need one uh, so that you can read along with us out of the text of scripture this morning and know that those are always there for you if you don't actually own a Bible for you to be able to take home with you and read it throughout the week. You know, I'd like to think that I am a focused person, that when I set my mind to something, that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to set my mind, I'm going to focus on it, and I'm going to get it done. But that's not always the case. I mean, I'm not a, a big TV watcher. We don't watch a lot of TV. But if the TV is on and I happen to walk by it, then it's very easy for me to get sucked into whatever's on the TV, regardless if I care about what it is or even know what's going on. I mean, even just yesterday, I was... Hanging out at home is a nice day. We were outside and my son Owen, though, wanted to watch a cartoon. And so I set up a show for him and was watching this and he was watching it. And all of a sudden I realized that I am sitting there watching uh, one of his TV shows. I can't even remember the name of it now. And I, I have to figure out if Toby is going to stop the train from running into Farmer Stinky's wagon. I, I need to figure out if that's going to happen or not. And all of a sudden I realized, I'm like, what am I doing? I'm sitting here watching this show. I get so sucked into it without even recognizing it. Man, we live in a very distracted and distracting world, don't we? I mean, there are things everywhere all the time that are vying for our attention. We have distractions to distract us from our distractions. It's how distracted we are as a people. And I think one of our biggest distractions for most of us, not all of us, is our smartphone. And those of you that don't have smartphones are sitting there and thinking self-righteously, you don't have a smartphone. So we'll let you figure that out on your own. But for those of us that have smartphones, it can be very easy to be distracted by that. There's so many things to look on on it. And I think one of the most significant times that we are distracted by our smartphones is when we're in the car. Now, I know that none of you text or look at Facebook or Twitter or Instagram while you're driving. I know you don't do that because that's against the law. But, I mean, at a stoplight, we're not really driving, right? And so it's a good opportunity to make sure that you haven't missed anything in the social media world in the last couple of minutes. So you sit there and you look down at the stoplight. But what happens so many times? You're sitting there looking down. The light turns green. All the cars go. And you're still sitting there thumbing through your phone. You're that guy that everybody's looking at, waiting to go. See, what happens is if you've taken your eyes off of the main thing, the most important thing that you need to be focused on at that given point, and that is actually driving your car and placed it on something temporary, even if just for a few seconds, even if just in a moment, you placed it on something less important, but something that at the moment seems to need your attention immediately. Well, as we go through our series in the Torah, and we come today to a story in the book of Genesis that tells an interesting vignette. It's a, it's a small story in the midst of this big story that the author of Genesis and in God's providence saw fit and thought it necessary to put into the text. But it's in this story that we see how manipulation and flippancy and distraction can lead to devastation. But also in this story, we are reminded of the continuing and sovereign grace of God, who is faithful to his plans and faithful to his people. The vignette in Genesis that we're going to look at today is challenging to us, especially because we live in a distracted and distracting world. But by God's grace, we can learn from this and grow and be encouraged to fix our eyes on what matters most, what is most important, what is good for our souls, and will give glory and honor to God. 
So as we open up the text this morning, let's pray that God would help us to understand and apply his word today. Father, we thank you for the opportunity we have each and every week to come together, to gather together as a group of people, as brothers and sisters, as those that are checking out who Jesus is, what it means to know and follow after Christ. Lord, we thank you for the time we have now to open up your word. And we pray that as we do that, as we look at this story in Genesis, that you would help us to see that it's not just an interesting story, but that it has relevance for our life. There's something critical for us to see in this And I pray that you'd help us to to understand it, that it would impact not just our minds, that we would know knowledge, but it would impact our hearts and change the way that we live. Lord, we can't do that on our own, by our own willpower. We need your spirit to do that work in us. And so we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would work today and that you get all the glory and honor from that. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We'll go ahead and grab your Bible and turn to Genesis chapter 25. It's where we're going to be this morning. Genesis chapter 25. We're not going to read all of Genesis chapter 25, but we are going to read a good chunk starting in verse 19. And we're going to go all the way through the end of the chapter in Genesis chapter 25. Starting in verse 19, it says this. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean, of Paddan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, if it, is, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once, when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I'm exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? And Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Man, we've spent a good chunk of time looking at the story of Abraham and his relationship with God. But this week, we, we jump ahead a bit in the text. We jump from chapter 22 to chapter 25, and a lot of ground has been covered in the history of God's people. Since Genesis chapter 22, Sarah, Abraham's wife, has died. Abraham has sought to find a wife for his son Isaac. Isaac marries Rebekah. Abraham dies and he's buried next to Sarah in the only piece of land that he has ever owned. And then we get to this text in Genesis chapter 25. It's a story, it's a transition in the story. The focus isn't any longer on Abraham, but it's on Isaac and his family. 
It says, these are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, of the Aramean of Padan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. Now, we know that the promise God has made to Abraham is that he would become a great nation, that his children would number more than the sand on the seashore, more than the stars in the sky, that he would become a great nation and through him bless all nations. And so what we see here at the beginning of this is it seems like the promises of God are going to continue on. Isaac, Abraham's son, his promised son, the son of promise is married now. But then we get to the beginning of verse 21 and we see that there's a problem It says, Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. Once again, we see that there's barrenness, there's infertility that's a part of God's story. The promise of the Redeemer that will come through Abraham's line and now through Isaac, it seems to be stalled out because they can't get pregnant. But perhaps Isaac has learned something from his own life, from his own story. He knows and has seen the promises of God and the faithfulness of God even to himself. His own existence is attributed to God's faithfulness and grace. The fact that his father didn't sacrifice him but a substitute was made for him is a picture of God's faithfulness and grace. He's been a recipient of it. So instead of taking things into his own hands as his father did... He goes and prays to God. And we see in verse 21, the rest of verse 21, the Lord granted his prayer and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. God's timing of God's promises is in God's hands. He's still seeking to show his people and to show us this morning that all of this is his doing, not their own doing. God is sovereign and God is faithful. He will do what he said he was going to do. Now, out of this, we already see a theme of the text starting to emerge, and that is a picture of God's sovereign grace. He is in control of all things, and he is gracious always to his people, giving them what they don't deserve. But we very quickly see that though Isaac is the son of promise, that what happens is that God's story in his life is overshadowed by God's story in his children's life. Verse 22, the children struggled together within her and she said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. Rebecca, who has presumably longed to be pregnant, she has longed to be with child. She knows the promises of God for her husband and for her family. She longs to be pregnant. But at this moment in time, she's questioning why she really wanted to be pregnant in the first place. I mean, this is the pinnacle of a difficult and long pregnancy, a rough pregnancy pregnancy. The nuance of the language here is that the children are not just struggling with each other. They're smashing into each other. They are crushing one another. There's a wrestling match going on inside of her womb. So the same thing happens though. Like her husband, she doesn't complain about it. She goes to the Lord with it and says, what is going on? God, I don't understand why this is happening. And it's in God's answer to her that we see the significance of what is happening right now and what will happen in her children's life. Verse 23, the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. You're having twins. And these twins are warring inside of you because they will war with one another as two nations 
But see, the twist in what God says to her in his answer is when he declares that the older shall serve the younger. The older shall serve the younger. But this doesn't make any sense. This isn't how things go. In this culture, in this time, the firstborn held preeminence. The firstborn received more than any other children born after them. The firstborn had rights. The firstborn had the right to the family name, to family leadership, and the majority of the family inheritance. But God says that's not going to be the case with your kids. The younger one is going to have more than the older. The older will serve the younger. So what's going on here? Well, as we will see, it has absolutely nothing to do with whether or not Jacob will do good and Esau will do evil. Jacob is declared the heir because of God's providence and his electing grace. Romans 9 tells us that it's not because of any good or bad that they had done or would do, but it's to uphold God's purposes and his sovereign grace. As one pastor and commentator says, the order of nature does not determine the order of grace. Tradition does not determine grace. Convention does not dictate grace. It's grace because God gives it as God sees fit to. No explanation is offered by God for his choice. But that reminds us, as it should remind us over and over and over again, that God is God and we are not. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. But we also have to make sure that as we see this, if we start to say, I don't like the fact that, that Jacob the younger is going to be over Esau the older, that God is giving grace to Jacob in this. I don't like that. We have to remember that God's operating principle throughout all of Genesis that we've seen has been to give unmerited and undeserved grace. Adam and Eve receive grace as they receive the promise of a redeemer and another son. Noah finds grace with God, not because of anything he's done, but because God just bestows it on him. Abraham, Abraham was called out of a land of pagan worshiping people to know and follow God because of his grace. Isaac himself was a gift of grace from God. And now the same is true for Jacob. The unmerited grace of God is given in order to form a people and bring redemption to the world. It's all of grace from beginning to end. But let's keep going. Verses 24 through 26, when her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. It's taken 20 years since he starts praying before his children are born. This is a long journey of faith, but this is a crazy scene. I mean, we have these two sons being born. The first one comes out, and he is red and hairy, is what the text says. That's weird. But then it gets weirder because as he comes out red and hairy, there's his brother is grabbing onto his heel as if like, hey, I'm coming right after you. And so they name him Jacob. And Jacob means heel snatcher. It comes to mean deceiver. The author doesn't tell us much about their childhood at that point except to establish, yes, Esau was born first and Jacob came after him. But then the author jumps ahead to adulthood and here he slows down a good bit to tell us more details in the story. Verses 27 and 28. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man, dwelling in tents. Isaac 
loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. We get some more details about these two guys. Esau is an outdoorsman. He's a skillful hunter, while Jacob, on the other hand, is called a quiet type. He likes to stay at home and indoors and read books and do things like that. They're, they're very different from one another is what they're trying to establish. These two brothers are nothing alike. The only thing they have in common is that their parents are the same. And to add to that, we have a good dose of parental favoritism, which certainly doesn't help to have a healthy, functional family dynamic. And all of this, though, what we have to see in all of this is what God is doing is he's seeking to establish, to set the stage of what's about to happen. All of this, in some ways, is background information for what's about to happen. What he's declared about these two boys, these two men, what is being taken place, who these people are, their, their dynamics, their disposition, all of these things. He set the stage for this next story that we're going to look at. And that's going to be the main focus of the rest of our time together. Because in it, there's much that we can be challenged by. Verses 29 through 34 tell of this unique, maybe odd story. Once, when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom, which means red. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of What use is a birthright to me? Jacob says, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. What we see here is a a story of deception and apathy. Both of these men have a flippancy toward God and his grace. Esau comes in from hunting, but he hasn't caught anything. The man who's declared a skillful hunter has nothing to bring home. And this is a troublesome spot for him because his identity is wrapped up in this. His father loves him because of what he brings to the table. And he has nothing to bring. He's empty-handed and he's hungry. And Jacob is conveniently, maybe purposefully, fixing a stew that smells good. Esau sees it, smells it, and longs for it. And he demands some of it from Jacob. He's not just asking for a little bite to eat so it can tide him over until mealtime. The way that the text is written here is that Esau is saying, I want to gulp it all down. I want to swallow all of it. Give it all to me right now. He's crass and he's demanding. But Jacob is the aggressive one here. In the midst of Esau's hungry state and flippant attitude, he is crafty and he takes advantage of the situation. Jacob says, I'll give you this stew if you sell me your birthright. Now, the birthright is essentially, as we said, this, this status of the firstborn. It, it's meant to be a headship of the family. And this, the, the firstborn would receive a double inheritance from the father, from his father. And so what Jacob is asking Esau is, give me all of that. This is an insane request. Sure, I'll give you some stew. Just give me everything that is rightfully yours that will impact your life forever. Give it all to me, and I'll give you a bowl of soup. It would be like someone coming up to you saying, look, I'll give you a really good steak dinner. And all I ask for you in return is to give me all of your earnings, all of your inheritance, everything you have or ever will have. This is going to be an expensive meal for Esau. So how does Esau respond to this insane business proposition? He responds with a flippant attitude. He says, I'm about to die. What use is a birthright to me? He's not thinking clearly. He's distracted by 
the state of his longings. And it's in this moment that Esau takes his eyes off of what is most important. He takes his eyes off of who he is, of what it means. And he allows the pursuit of temporary satisfaction to take control over his life. And Jacob wants to make sure this is a done deal. So he says, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. With the deal complete and what Jacob wants in his hand, Jacob spoons out some red soup to his hungry brother. And verse 34 completes this story and says, Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and he drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Man, you continue to see his flippant attitude here towards what's just taken place. His flippant attitude towards who he is and what he's done. He eats, he drinks, he gets up, he walks away. He's indifferent to the whole thing. And his indifference communicates a despising of the promises of God for him and his family. I'm sure at this point Esau has heard the stories over and over and over again about how God called his grandfather Abram out of the land. To go to a place that God would establish for him, that God promised on multiple times, multiple occasions, that through Abraham's line that the nations would be blessed, that he would become a great nation. And logically, from his perspective, that should come through him. But in the moment of longing, a moment of seeking after earthly things, worldly things, his hungry belly, he gives it all away. He gives away so much and receives so little in return. He destroys his life and his future because of what he longs for. One momentary decision leads to a lifetime of death. He shifts his gaze. His God is his belly. And in a seemingly insignificant thing, in a seemingly insignificant moment, becomes defining for his life. Esau's own sin seals his fate He has no regard for God's word or God's promises, and he is willing to sacrifice it all for a pot of stew. Esau is a shallow man. He's governed by his feelings more than the faithfulness of God, but Jacob is not innocent in all of this. He is cool and calculated and conniving. As one pastor says of Jacob, he says, Jacob is a rascal, opportunist, cheater, ambitious, self-seeking, self-serving, grasping, scheming, heartless, exploitative. See, what we see here in this story is a depiction of two different men, a scheming Jacob and a squandering Esau. And both are flippant in faith toward God. Esau does not have faith in God's faithfulness as he flippantly compromises his identity. Jacob does not have faith in God's faithfulness as he seeks to manipulate in order to receive blessing. And it won't be the last time that he does it. Both Jacob and Esau are hopelessly self-centered and incapable of doing anything good on their own. Neither of them are praiseworthy and both of them are in desperate need of grace. And that's the point. That's the point. They both need God's grace. Esau seals his fate with his sin, but God shows grace to Jacob. Even in spite of his scheming, deceiving, rebellious, self-seeking heart, he continues the promise of Abraham through Jacob. So you and I should not be offended that God would choose Jacob over Esau, but we should marvel at the magnitude of mercy that God gives to him in spite of and in light of the enormity of disobedience that takes place in both of their lives. That should blow us away, that God does anything gracious, 
That God doesn't just stop things right here in the midst of this conniving, in the midst of this flippancy. See, I think it's interesting that throughout the Old Testament, God calls himself the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which means that God calls himself the God of grace. There's nothing praiseworthy in any of these men. What is praiseworthy is God's faithfulness, God's grace that he extends to unworthy people. Now, while you and I can seek to earn favor with God, we can seek to manipulate and scheme for blessing like Jacob. I think the reality is, I think the greater temptation for you and for me today is to squander what we do have like Esau. In Hebrews chapter 12, the author gives us a warning. He tells us to pursue peace and holiness. He tells us to help one another obtain and walk in grace, the grace that's given to us. And not to allow the bitterness of unbelief to brew up in our life, to creep in, leading us to false worship, to pursue false and counterfeit gods. And then the author of Hebrews tells us to help each other not be like Esau. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 16 and 17, he says, See to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. The author of Hebrews is saying, don't sacrifice. Don't compromise your identity and the grace that you've received for a pot of stew. For temporary satisfaction and pleasure. In an instant of, instant of lustfulness, Esau takes his eyes off of God. And he gives up everything in order to pursue selfish ends. So the question for us this morning is, what do we have? What is our identity this morning? And in order for us to answer that question, in order for us to see what we do have, we have to come back to the one who fulfills the promises of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. See, the story of Jacob and Esau here is about God preserving the seed of redemption even in spite of outright sin and rebellion against him. Jacob is certainly not the savior of God's people. In fact, Jacob is a recipient of God's grace that God gives to his people. What we see in this story is that God's sovereign grace prevails even in the messy situation of flippant faith because God is going to bring his plan of redemption to fruition and there is only one preeminent son colossians chapter one one of the most important one of the most critical one of the most enlightening and and worshipful text of all of scripture paul writes this he says he is the image of the invisible god the firstborn of all creation for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on, heaven, on, on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. He's talking about Jesus, who is the preeminent son, the one who has everything, who created everything. Everything was created by him and for him, and he holds everything together. And this Jesus, the faithful son of God, what he does is sets his rights aside to die for those who have no right. 
Mark chapter 10, verse 45 says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was yet rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Philippians chapter 2 Verses 5 through 8 say, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus has all the rights of the Son of God. He is the preeminent one. He is the firstborn, yet he, in humility and love and grace, sets aside his rights as the firstborn, his birthright for all of us who have no right to claim anything from God. Jesus is tempted in every way that we are with the distractions of life, with the things of this world, yet he is without sin. And by shedding his blood for us on the cross, By rising again from the grave to give us life, the Jacob-like scheming and the Esau-like squandering nature that's within all of us is redeemed. Jesus is their only hope as much as Jesus is your only hope this morning. See, in the midst of our flippant faith, we are recipients of God's sovereign grace when we lean wholly and completely on Jesus. And now we have the inheritance of the firstborn son because we now are called sons and daughters too. Listen to this. Romans chapter 8 verses 16 and 17 say the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Galatians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. When you and I place our feeble faith in the faithful God to save us from our flippant and distracted hearts that worship pots of stew instead of the living God, God is gracious and faithful to forgive you and to forgive me because of what Jesus has done for us. And it doesn't stop there. Ephesians 1 verse 3 says, We have received every spiritual blessing in Christ Ephesians 2 verses 4 through 5 say we've been made alive through Christ. 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 3 says we have received everything we need for life and godliness through Christ. Galatians chapter 5 says we have received freedom from sin and freedom to obey because of Christ. Because Jesus laid down his rights to give you his righteousness by faith, you and I are eternal sons and daughters of the king. That is what we have. That is who we are. That is our identity. That's your identity this morning if you are in Christ. But Esau forgot who he was. The firstborn son of Isaac, who was the son of promise. Do you forget who you are? Do you forget what your identity is? Do you define yourself by what you've done or what you're doing? 
Are you confused in your identity? What defined you this morning? Honestly, what, what defines your life this morning? When you think about yourself, when you think about the image that you portray to those around you, how you live your life, what you operate by, the operating principle of your life, what is it? What defines you? I am the son of Chip and Carolyn, the brother of Kevin, the husband of Amy, the father of Owen and Isaac, but that is not who I am primarily. That is not what defines me now. What defines me now is that I am the blood-bought son of the living God. My will was in bondage to my sin, but through Christ I have been set free from that. And the life I now live, I no longer live according to my flesh, but I live by faith in the Son of God, not faith in myself. But man, how easy is it to forget, like Esau, like Jacob, my identity, who I am Man, the reality is for me is that so often I start my day and I start my week behind. I wake up and, I, and I'm thinking about my mind's going with what needs to be done. I'm thinking about how tired I am. I worry about my finances. I worry about ministry. I worry and I'm overwhelmed with the day or the week ahead. And my mind and my heart are not focused on in on who I am. I've gotten distracted. I forget that first and foremost, I am a child of God, clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. And I don't want you to think that because I'm a pastor that I wake up every day singing worship songs. (laughs) Or quoting scriptures, I wake up in the morning. Most of the time I'm waking up again, feeling behind, feeling distracted. And I forget who I am. And when that happens in a split second, a split second, maybe at the very beginning of the day or throughout the day, I can take my eyes off of Christ and become entangled in destructive sin with the words of my mouth, with my thoughts, with my eyes, with my actions. I can become angry. I can be anxious, lustful, prideful, lazy. I can be a gossip. I can be arrogant. I can be apathetic towards life because I have forgotten who I am. Esau ruined his life because his appetite overpowered his identity. When we fill our days and we fill our minds with asinine things instead of God's gracious truth, we make small compromises that lead to Esau-like devastation. Small compromises. Esau was tempted by something he never thought he'd be tempted by. And in one split second, he takes his eyes off of who he is His appetite overpowers his identity and he ruins his life. It's easy for us to take our eyes off of who we are in Christ. For a mess of stew, for a pot of stew, we give up everything that's been given to us in and through God's grace in Christ. We sacrifice it. Esau became defined by his disobedience. But I want you to know this morning that if you are in Christ this morning, that you have been redefined and redeemed out of your disobedience. Don't go back to it then. Don't wander back to it. God has brought you out of that. He's redeemed you out of that. That is not who you are anymore. You're not defined by what you've done or what's been done to you. You have a new identity. So now you can walk in the grace that you've received. 
Recently, I've been studying and meditating on Romans chapter 12 and 13. I mean, they are just so good. The book of Romans is really good, but chapter 12 and 13 are really good. And specifically in Romans 13, there's a few verses that are just so challenging and impactful for us. And I I think it's relevant to us this morning. Paul writes in Romans 13, verses 11 through 14, he says this, Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. Man, how often do we walk through life sleeping? For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Esau made provision for his flesh. He took his eyes off of Christ. What does it mean for you and for me to put on Christ? What does it mean for you and for me to make no provision for the flesh? Do you realize that you and I have more access to things that can help remind us of who we are in Christ? We have more access to encourage us in our relationship with Jesus than anyone in all of time has ever had. Yet at the very same time, we have more things in our life to distract us than at any other point in history. Our growth in grace is not passive. It's not passive. We can't sit and think that we're just going to follow Jesus. We're just going to keep our eyes fixed on Christ by just sitting on the couch and doing nothing. We must fight for joy in Jesus. And we fight for joy in Jesus by remembering the radical, undeserved, unexplainable grace of God given to us in Jesus We fight for joy in Jesus by remembering who that makes us now, who we are now, sons and daughters of the King, recipients of grace, heirs of the inheritance of Christ. And we live lives to seek to daily put on Christ and make no provision for our flesh. This means that we must live lives of gospel deliberateness. We have to be deliberate with our lives like an athlete training to win the game. We too must discipline ourselves for godliness. But listen, this is not about trying harder. It's not about doing better. It's about driving the gospel deeper and deeper into our hearts because it's in our hearts where transformation takes place. Look, you and I cannot earn favor with God. We talked about that two weeks ago. The scandalous grace of God that he's given to us is that we do not work in order to be counted and justified and made righteous before God. That all comes through Christ. But because you and I have received the scandalous grace of God, because we are clothed in Jesus' righteousness now, we now can walk in freedom. We now can pursue Christ's likeness and not pots of stew. One pastor compares it to getting a new operating system. When you are in Christ, you've received a new operating system. The old operating system of your life has been removed and junked. But if we are lazy or haphazard in life, what we'll do is we'll default back to our default settings. Because that's what we know. That's more comfortable. It's like going from Windows to a Mac operating system, right? it's, It's new. It's different. It's more comfortable to stay over here. But we need to be deliberate. 
We need to operate out of a gospel operating system, beginning each day with that as the focus of our life. It means that every day as we wake up, we should seek to start each day. Look at each opportunity and circumstance, knowing first and foremost that if you are in Christ, you are now clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And if you're clothed in the righteousness of Christ, then sin no longer has dominion over you anymore. You now live with the mind of Jesus so you can make provision for growth in grace, not provision for the satisfaction of your flesh. You follow Jesus now, not Esau. If you are in Christ, you are set free from the things that once controlled you. So don't go back to them. Don't go back to them. Look to what is better. We read this at the beginning of our service, Hebrews chapter 12. The writer of Hebrews says, Let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. All these things vying for our attention, all these distractions to pull us off course. Let us lay all of these, these things aside and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Sojourn, we need to fix our eyes on Jesus. We have to look at every moment of every day by fixing our eyes on Jesus in the midst of the distractions, in the midst of the difficulties, in the midst of the mundaneness of life. We need to run the race before us by fixing our eyes on Jesus. It begins and ends with Jesus. It begins and ends with the grace we've received through Jesus. Surgeon, we have to not be conformed any longer to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds, the renewing of our hearts. We need to drive the gospel deeper and deeper into the heart so that it impacts everything that we do. So that when a temptation like a pot of stew comes our way, we see it for what it is, we reject it, and we follow Christ. Man, that means we need to Get into the word, God's word given to us. We need to saturate our minds and our hearts with his word. Wash our minds and our hearts with the word. We need to hear the word. We need to sing the word. I don't know about you, but I love coming together to gather with the church, to hear God's word, to hear truths about the gospel, to hear truths about who I am in Christ sung by you. It encourages my heart to hear my brothers and sisters singing these truths, even if I'm struggling to believe them in a given moment. Man, we need to hear these things. We need to allow them to transform our hearts and our minds, see them as washing us. And sojourn, we need to speak gospel truth to one another. We need to look at each other, remind each other of who we are in Christ, that we're clothed in the righteousness of Jesus That Christ has redeemed you and redefined you so that you might no longer be a schemer and a squanderer. We point out distractions in each other's lives. Hebrews 3 tells us to exhort one another every day as long as it's called today so that we are not deceived by sin. And our hearts are not hardened by sin. And we need to help one another. When we see each other wandering away, pursuing pots of stew instead of pursuing Christ out of love, We call each other out on that and call each other back to Jesus. Look, if you're in Christ this morning, your heart has been changed and it is being changed, not by your self-will or your own willpower, but because of Jesus. So you and I, if we are in Christ, you can be kind and generous, loving, considerate, pure, self-controlled, gentle, 
gracious, missional, hardworking, patient, joyful, peaceable, because you are united with Christ and God has given you his spirit. Has what you have in Christ lost its luster? Are you indifferent to your birthright in Christ? Are you living a half-committed life to Jesus this morning because you like better the perceived benefits of the world? What is your pot of stew? The small circumstances, the small compromises in your life where you take your eyes off for a split second and in an instant give everything away. Sojourn, Jesus wants all of you, every aspect of your life, every part of your life, even the details. He wants your Instagram account. He wants your Facebook account, your Twitter account, the blogs that you read, the TV shows that you watch, what you do with your money, what you do with your time, how you work, how you live, how you drive, how you eat. He wants all of it. It's in the details of your life that you become distracted. He wants all of it, and that is good for you. It's good for me to give all of our life to Jesus, knowing it's better. Jesus is better. It's better to follow him than follow anything the world has to offer to us. Maybe this morning you are defined by what you've done, or you're defined by what you're doing, or what has been done to you, but that doesn't have to be the case. You don't have to be enslaved to those things. Jesus has come to set you free from that and to give you a new identity. Man, if you haven't ever turned to Christ, will you turn to Jesus this morning? Will you turn to him this morning believing that he died for you and raised, was raised again from the dead for you, for your distracted, disobedient, and dysfunctional life? If you haven't trusted in Christ, trust in him this morning. Come to him this morning. But for all of us, Don't refuse or despise the one who by his sovereign grace calls you his child and calls you now to follow him. Even in the midst of our flippant faith, God's grace remains. The work he began in you, he will bring to completion. So seek to follow after him. Don't presume on the grace he's given to you for a pot of stew. Walk in it for the glory of God. As we come to this table this morning, let's Eat the bread and drink the cup. But as we do that, be reminded of David's words to us. In Psalm 34, David says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. For those who fear him have no lack. The world offers us pots of stew that might taste good for the moment, but are gone in an instant. But through Christ, we are given a glorious feast of unending grace. Let's feast on Jesus who gave his body for us and shed his blood for us that you and I might have life. In Christ, we lack nothing. So as you come to the table this morning, be reminded of who you are, that you've been cleansed, that you've been washed, that you've been set free from your sin and made new in Christ. Celebrate this morning the reality that redemption has come through the sovereign grace of God alone. You are now a child of God and you are a child of God forever. And if you're not a follower of Christ, we would just ask you not to come forward to take communion because this is a holy meal This is a meal that declares that our hope is not in pots of stew. It's not in the things this world offers us. Our hope alone is in Christ who gave himself for us. And so if that is not where your hope is this morning, then we'd encourage you just to hang out in your seat because we want you to take Jesus. 
We want you to know Jesus. So would you pray? Would you ask God to save you from your sin this morning and turn to Christ? Believe that he died on the cross for you and was raised again for you. And please come talk to someone afterwards if that's you this morning. We want to help you know what it means to know and follow Christ. And those of you that do come forward, you can come forward when you're ready and tear off a small piece of bread and take a small cup to drink. And what Jesus has done for you will be spoken over you this morning. Let's pray. Father, I pray right now, Lord, that you would clear out our minds and our hearts, not empty our minds like so many Eastern religions believe, but you would clear out the cobwebs, clear out the junk, clear out the sin, clear out the idols and replace them with that which is more worthy of worship. Would you stir our affections for Jesus this morning? Transform our mind to be like the mind of Christ this morning. Help us to see you more clearly in every moment of our life and to focus and pursue you more intently than we ever have before. Lord, help us to believe this is for our good and it's for your glory. Lord, help us not to be distracted by the things of this world. Lord, we want to follow you. Help us to do that. We can't do that by just trying harder. We can't do that by seeking to do good things. We do that when the gospel takes root in the depths of our heart. So Lord, drive it into the depths of our heart this morning. We thank you, Lord, for your sovereign grace that even when we are flippant in our faith, that your grace remains. Help us to walk in it, Lord. We so desperately need it. And as we come forward now to receive the elements of the bread and the cup, I pray that the truth of the gospel would wash over us this morning and that we would be refreshed in the depths of our souls because of your grace given to us through Christ. Lord, we love you. We thank you that you always, always love us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Come forward when you're ready.